Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Church, you may be seated. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who I don't know, uh, my name is Brian Carroll. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here on, on staff. And um, really quick, a couple of things before, before we jump into to the word today. Uh, uh, first thing, you know, just to kind of really um, echo what, what Ryan said uh, at the beginning of service is, you know, we want to be a church who um, we are encourage one another, we love one another, and and really we want to we want to be a church that that does meet needs. And so he shared a bit about the boxes uh, that we've been collecting, the food we've been gathering in the last couple of weeks. But I also want you to know, I mean, if you've been around for a while, you know this. But if you're relatively new. Um, we also want to be serious about taking care of the needs within the house, within the family. And so um, if one way that we do that is each week uh, in the back, uh, on this back table, um, we have a couple of $50 HEB cards. And so if you are finding yourself uh, needing uh, just a little help with groceries um, or any, anything like that, um, those are for you to take. You don't need to ask anybody. You don't need to talk to us. Um, those are there for you to take. And so we just want that to be a simple way in which we're able to help them needs. If there's not one back there and you're needing one, come find myself um, or, or Ryan, and we would we'd be happy to get you connected with one. So anyways, we just want to share that as well. Um, also, I also got to make an apology to my mother-in-law um, because today we're in Psalm 29. And if you've noticed that uh, last two weeks, we were in, th- we were in 32 um, and then the one before that, um, well, really what you see is we're working backwards. And so normally, we don't normally like to work backwards. We like to work forward. But what we're going to see is Psalm 29 is working forward, even though we're going backwards. But I do want to apologize for the illusion that we are working backwards, uh, my mother-in-law. So I love you. <laughs> All right, anyway, Psalm 29, y'all go ahead and open up if you haven't already. Um, you probably heard this thought before. It's nothing new. I'm not that creative to, to think of it. But um, it's, it's worth just bringing up as we begin to talk about a psalm that, that deals a lot with glory. Um, I think it's, it kind of brings up for me when I first read this, it brings up this kind of instinctive, instinctive thing in within us that every one of us are wired in some way to, to praise and, and to worship. Um, there's, there's this idea within us that this, to, to worship and to, to praise, I mean, it's, we're ascribing worth to it. And it's not necessarily just something that we see within the church, but rather it's, it's something that I think it's in all of mankind. 
And when, when we eat or when someone eats a really, really good meal, it, it almost feels like the experience is completed whenever you praise it. Like, oh man, that was a really good steak. Uh, oh, that's a really good medium rare steak. Let me add that. There is no such thing as a, as a good steak that's well done. Uh, amen. Um, Right? Or, or when you are taking a, a, a trip uh, to the mountains, you're going to Riodosa, and, and, and as you're past Roswell, you begin to see the outliers in the mountains, and there's just something in you that just praises, and just like you're just so thankful, and, and it gets you excited. Um, see, see, I think praising something, or I mean, so there's so many other things that we could do this to, but I think praising something or, or, or lifting something up when we are experiencing it is a part of just how we're wired. I mean, even think when God uh, created the world, you see in Genesis 1, almost after every day, he says, after he created something, he says, and it was good. I think a part of us being image bearers is that we are a people that, that, that we like to, to praise and, and to, to worship. Um, but the thing is about when we think about experiences of this life um, or a, a good meal or a trip to the mountains, all those things really have a shelf life, don't they? Um, because whenever you have a really good meal, a memory of it doesn't really uh, quite feel the same as when you're eating it. Or whenever your trip to the mountains ends, and in the rear view mirror, you see the mountains actually fade and not grow bigger, and all you see ahead is Roswell. Um, no shade if anyone's from there. Uh, but you get a little sad, right? The, the things that we praise and, and worship um, of this world, the, of creation, like, a lot of times good things uh, they, they in of themselves have a shelf life. They're not meant to really just um, be the finality of where our praise and worship should be directed. And so needless to say, um, full glory, full goodness, things that are fully worthy of praise and worship cannot be found in creation cannot be found in the things that we experience. And even in one another, and, and even good relationships, even like in marriage, like supreme glory and honor and worship and goodness cannot be found in things that were created, but rather in the creator. The most beautiful and good and glorious things don't even compare to the one who made them. Supreme glory and worth belong to nobody else. Welcome to Psalm 29. This, one of the things that you, we may have noticed over the last few weeks that we've been kind of talking about as we've uh, looked at uh, the Psalm 31 even last week is that we see that um, when we want to be in the presence of God, that, that is the end of itself. Sometimes it's easy for us to look to God for relief and for, for, comfort, for, for comfort or to help make our situation and circumstances better. But the reality is we don't want to give God just for what he can give, but rather we want to see God as the point and end of himself. His presence is our ultimate good. We've talked about that a couple of times over, over again the last few weeks. But again, I think we mentioned this last week, it can easily become this thing that seems a little bit disconnected. We, we, we would agree, and many of us in here would agree, man, that our ultimate good is found in God's presence. That that's where we want to be. That's where our soul really craves and needs. Uh, but, but the reality is, the disconnect is, I know that, but do I really believe it? Is that something that I really, really want and desire? And I think the question for us to think about is we even think about that disconnect, if that's something that you feel or experience, 
uh, I, I think a question that would be, Psalm 29 would have us ask is, what are we ascribing the most glory to? What are we seeing as, some, as the, what is most valuable of, of supreme worth? Because what we glory in, what we find as most valuable, what we find as most praiseworthy um, is ultimately what we will find our trust in. And what we find our trust in, it will be something that will take up a lot of our energy, our mind, real estate, um, our efforts, our desires. It will consume our affections. Wherever those things are, that will be what we will ultimately trust in. And what does it mean to glory in something other than to, to give, it our, give it our highest honor and trust? Our highest value. When we glory in something, we hold it in awe and reverence. And whatever it is that we hold in awe and reverence, that is the thing that we will trust. And Psalm 29 deals with this. And Psalm 29 would have us see that our ultimate good is found in the one who made all things. And so this is what Psalm 29 deals with. And so here's the layout of of where we're going to go today. Verses 1 and 2 helps us see that God is worthy of supreme glory. Verses 3 through 9 help us see that he is worthy of supreme glory because there is no one better than him. And then 11 through 12 will help us see, therefore, we can trust him. So let's jump right in. So let's look in verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. What is one of the things that you might notice right off the bat when you read these first two verses? Uh, You probably have noticed that there's a little bit of repetition going on, right? So we see the word ascribe used three different times. And the way that it's used is, is, is a command. It's an imperative. It's telling the audience, well, actually, it's telling the heavenly beings, which we'll get to that in a second, of what they are supposed to do. And so when we ascribe something, when it says we are to ascribe glory to God, um, what it means to ascribe, it's another way of saying we are to recognize, we are to, 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 to give. Um, it's kind of like when your parents tell you to, hey, clean up your room, you, you need to, the, the goal is to follow that because of who it's coming from. Uh, whether you do that or not, I don't know. Um, but ascribing means you're, you're giving honor to, you're, you're giving worth to. And what we see with each uh, little phrase, th- there's a bit of a progression going on. He first says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. He doesn't even give a directive. He just says, ascribe. And then he says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then it culminates at the beginning of verse 2. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The glory due his name. And, and so with each progression, this each, with each repetition of this command, it's not what the picture that's being created here, it's not meant to be a mere suggestion. But rather, supreme glory and strength is to be given to the Lord. The glory do his name. In a similar way, it might be, think of it like this. It might be like you're standing at the cliff, the very edge of a, of a cliff that, that just that is far reaching below you, and all you see is a vast valley of mountains ahead of you. 
That's the second mountain reference. Um, this, you just see a bunch of mountains in front of you. In that moment, in that moment, you are in the presence of something so dangerous, yet at the same time breathtaking. Dangerous in the sense because of one small slip, you're going to fall. But breathtaking because you're in the presence of absolute beauty and splendor and majesty. God, when it says that God's glory is due his name, it's that idea that we are in the presence of someone who's to be completely feared above all things and we're being completely all over anything else, but yet we're in the presence of something so beautiful and wonderful and majestic. This is the bigness and vastness that we're seeing in these first two uh, verses of Psalm 29, that we are to think about God. When we see him, we are to, be, we are to, to ascribe this kind of glory. But notice, uh, again, in verse 1, what do we see this command directed to? The command's not directed to mankind. It's not directed necessarily to the reader, but it says, ascribe to the Lord glory heavenly beings. So that, that word heavenly beings is, can translate to as sons of God and sons of might. And there's a little bit of, of, of debate on, is he talking specifically about angels or is he just talking about the whole entirety of the spiritual realm? Regardless of, of how you might interpret that, what we see is that they are created beings. These are things that are created that is being referen- referenced to. And so really it's this... It's this command to those things that the Lord has created to ultimately ascribe ultimate glory and honor and strength to him and him alone. There's nobody else who is worthy of such honor. And so even the most uh, spiritual and majestic creatures that we can't even fathom, their end goal is to ascribe worth, glory, and honor to the Lord. And what what is their response as they ascribe glory and honor, worship. We see in verse, the end of verse two, he says, uh, worship the Lord in splendor, uh, in the splendor of holiness. Worship literally means to, to bow down. The proper response to the glory of God, to the majesty of God, to the fullness of God, because no one else is like him, is worship, is to, to, to bow down. Think of it this way. When someone is being knighted, you see like a medieval show or something like that, and someone is being knighted, the reason why the person is able to become a knight is not because of their own authority, but rather the authority that's being given to them. The authority that's being given to them is, is, comes from the person who might be you know, over the king of the country or the queen of the, the territory. And so the, the knight is bowing down because of, of respect and reverence of the one who's giving them the privilege of being knighted. In a very much bigger way, worship is this bowing down before the Lord. These heavenly beings are to bow down before the Lord, to, to worship him. And, and what we really see is you see a picture of Isaiah 6. And, and, and when Isaiah is in the throne, uh, the presence of God, and what he sees is these heavenly beings, known as the seraphim, we see these heavenly beings crying out over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Nothing or no one else is worthy of supreme honor as God. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the giver of life of all things. He's created everything. You and I, we are not just the products of randomness, but rather the Lord has breathed life into each one of us. He has given us his life. And because he has given us life, he sustains our life. He holds our life. He is worthy of all of our life. He is worthy of glory and honor. That's what Psalm 1 and 2 is trying to get our eyes fixed on. Is that there is nobody else worthy of honor and reverence than God. Even the heavenly beings will ultimately worship him. So this psalm starts off with just a loud, loud blast of there is no one like God. Ascribe glory to him. Ascribe worth to him. And so because, because God is worthy of God, the reason why God is worthy of supreme glory, worthy of supreme honor, worthy of worship is because ultimately there is nothing greater than him. And what we're going to see in verses three through nine is that that thrust is, is, is just made so evident and so abundantly clear. The psalm begins in, in, in seeing God as the, the most glory and honorable one. And the thrust of three through nine helps us see that more clearly. So what's really interesting, we're going to turn on the teaching hat for a second. Um, what's really interesting about Psalm 29 um, is, is that the backdrop of it is, is, so remember, Israel is in this, in, this, in this territory where they are surrounded by other countries and influences of, of other false gods and idols. The most popular one that you look through in the early parts of the Old Testament is, is Baal. Uh, Baal was a, the god of, of storms and fertility. Uh, it was thought that he was the one that was the giver of rains, the, the giver of seasons, and he was the ultimate one that was the one that was the giver of life. And so, the backdrop of Psalm twenty nine, like the the, this Baal, the Baal worship, is was a threatening uh, uh, presence, a threatening uh, thing for the people of Israel. Um, uh, during this time. And what Psalm 29 is, is really, it's actually a shot at Baal. It's a shot that he doesn't even compare to the glory that God has. And so again, there's a little debate about the nature of Psalm 29. Some people at one point thought that Psalm 29 was actually an old Canaanite hymn that was altered to be about God. Um, that, that's not as widely accepted. But what is pretty accepted is that there is definitely uh, allusions and references uh, in this psalm to um, certain Canaanite uh, literature um, that was about Baal. And, and the reason for the references is not, obviously not to exalt Baal, but to show how he just pales in comparison to the one true God. Let me read verses three through nine, and then I want to I I help us see that even a little more explicitly. It's really cool. Starting in verse three. And really quick, as I'm reading, I want you to think, what kind of imagery are you feeling? What kind of imagery are you seeing? Does it sound familiar? The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. 
and Sirion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare in his temple. All cry glory. So there is a piece of Canaanite literature that's called the Baal cycle. And that, what that describes is, is the epic of, of Baal and how he came to power. This is obviously mythology, but this, is, this was a prevalent piece of literature that was, had some influence in Israel during this time. And what it seems is that this psalmist actually had quite a bit of familiarity uh, with, with this piece of literature. Um, but before we get into that, what we see is what kind of picture is these verses painting? You almost see a picture and a vision of a storm, don't you? Uh, remember, Baal was the god of what? Storms, rain. Uh, and so what we see in, in, in these verses, we see these references to the storms and how the voice of the Lord is over them. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders in verse 3. In verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire, which is thought to be lightning. And then in verse 10, it says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And so, so you just kind of from a 30,000 foot view, the language that you see in Psalm 29 is that the Lord God Yahweh is already posturing himself over anything else. Even those violent of storms, which was common in that area, was something that, that God had complete control over. And what we see is seven times through these verses three through nine, the phrase, the voice of the Lord is used. And what this is saying, it, it's the voice of the Lord is this idea of communicating uh, God's authority, God's ability and power, God's majesty. It was a means of how he really demonstrated the glory and strength that uh, the angels were to ascribe to him in verses one and two. You're seeing the glory and strength of God fleshed out in really in, in verses three through nine. But I want to look at stanza by stanza to really see, uh, this is, to me, this is really cool, to really see how God is positioning himself over Baal. And again, I know Baal worship's not really a thing here, but this is very relevant to us today. We'll see it in a second, but I want us to see this. So let's look at stanza by stanza. Actually, if we have a map, that map, do we have that map? No map? No map? Maybe map. We'll see. Um, That's all right. So look in verses three through four again. Let me read it. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So there is a line in this Baal cycle that that might sound kind of familiar to this. Let me read it to you. this, This might be on the screen. So it says, Lo, also it is the time of his reign. Baal sets the season. And gives forth his voice from the clouds. He flashes lightning to the earth. What do we see similarly uh, in this, what we just read to Psalm 29? In, in the Baal cycle, that they're ascribing that the voice of his voice, the vo- his voice is what brings forth the clouds. But Psalm 29 counteracts that and says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. 
And what we see, and it's going to, we're going to see this even more, is that it wasn't Baal that was really the one who was in control, but it was the Lord. Psalm 29 knew that the people of that area saw Baal as a, uh, as a means for the, the storms to happen. But he is saying in this case that it is actually God who is over them. It is God who is better than Baal. And when he says over the Lord, over many waters, it's also a reference to the coast. If you look at Israel, uh, part of Israel has a coast. And there's, a, there's the Ionian Sea to the left of it uh, on, on the eastern side. And so this is actually a reference to also when he says the Lord is over the waters, that coastal region of Israel. But the references keep going. Look in verses five through six. He says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild uh, young ox. And so, so, we, so we move from the waters of the coast. It's mentioned in verses three through four. And then he mentions that the cedars of Lebanon uh, and also Syrian. So the cedars of Lebanon would have been to the northern part of Israel. Um, so your, your Bible might have a map in the back of it, and it'll show you the kind of the area of, of, of Israel. The, the, the cedars of Lebanon were in the, almost the northern part. Oh, there we go. Cool. Um, so it's in that northern part. And Syrian is also a reference to Mount Hermon. Hermon Mount Hermon was believed to, in, in some Jewish cultures and even that area, that, that's where Baal worship began. That, that was the start of it. Mount Hermon was, is the highest peak in that mountain range. And the cedars of Lebanon were considered the strongest trees in that area. That, that area was full of might, full of power, full of strength. And again, that was the area in which Baal worship was thought to first begin. And this even comes out. This even comes out again in this, this, this Canaanite literature, the Baal cycle, um, uh, in one part, as they're describing of, of Baal's history, he beats this other god, god called Yom. And, and as a result of him beating this god, another god, there's a lot of gods here, um, another god builds Baal this palace from the cedars of Lebanon. This is what it says there. He says, of cedars, his house is to be built. Of bricks is his palace to be erected. This is talking about Baal. He goes to Lebob and its trees, to Syria, the choicest of its cedars. Lo, Lebanon and its trees, Syria and its cedars. Can you show verses five and six again? What does God do to the cedars of Lebanon? The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf in Syrian or Mount Hermon like a young wild ox. This, this area that, that Baal used to, to, to build his palace, to, to display his glory, God breaks with his breath. He uses Lebanon like a toothpick. And Israel wanted to describe worship to this guy. And so what, we, what you see in, in, this, in, these references, in this reference is that, is that God is intentionally, the psalm is used to intentionally posture God, Yahweh, over this false worship that was prevalent in that area. 
And it's so amazing that, that the psalmist was so intuitive enough to use literature that would have been familiar to that area to demonstrate and show that this guy you want to worship, I can crush like that. That's not it. Because in verses 7 through 8, um, it reads, The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Can we go back to the map? So, so, so we moved from the coast, verses 3 through 4, to, to, the, to the mountain of Lebanon, verses 5 through 6, the northern part, and then to the wilderness and deserts of Kadesh, was, which was probably assumed to be in that southern region. Southern region of Judah, kind of where it says Moab and, and Edom over there. And so you see the sweep of this. The psalm is really sweeping all throughout the nation of Israel. And it's showing that the voice of God is over all of it. And we, we already read this quote earlier, um, but, it's, but uh, it, it was says in this Baal cycle that Baal gives forth his voice from the clouds and he flashes lightning to the earth. But we actually see in verse seven, it's the voice of the Lord that flashes forth flames of fire. And what does the Lord do to this vast desert of Kadesh? He shakes it. He, he's over it. And, and, and what we see in, in, in this, this stanza is this another reference to how God's power and majesty that, that this territory that would have been prevalent for Baal to use, that, that again, that would have been relied upon. Baal, please help us storms. God says, it's, actually, it's not him that's over it. It's actually me. I'm the one who flashes forth lightning. I'm the one who's doing this. And what, so, so what we see in Psalm 29 is bit by bit by bit, he is just dismantling the authority of Baal. He's dismantling the, the glory that would have been had with his God. He's dismantling any, any re- reasonable person's mind to, to think that, that this God is better than one true Yahweh. Glory and honor belong to no other. Glory is due to the name of the Lord, not to the name of Baal. And so I, 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 the glory of God ought to lead to the worship of his people, right? You, look, look in the, the last stanza. Look in this, or, or sorry, not the last, the, verse nine. So we see that the, the sweeping geography, the sweeping just voice and authority of God's glory sweeps over the whole nation. Then we focus into a small point. It says, the voice of the Lord shakes the, sorry, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Notice that how verses one through two, it was the, the heavenly beings that were to ascribe worship to the Lord. And we see that as God's power and voice is displayed throughout the whole area of Israel, the only result was then for the people to worship the Lord, for the people in the temple, in the presence of God to cry out glory. The glory of God, this, this voice of God, this authority of God, again, it leads, should lead to the worship of his people and find a security in his presence and to see that no one else, nothing else is able. Again, we don't worship Baal. 
Baal worship isn't a thing here. But guess what? We worship a lot of other things, don't we? We find our trust in a lot of other things. We ascribe great worth and value to a lot of other things. We ascribe worth and value to the things that we want to find comfort in. We find worth and value in our relationships. We can find it in our jobs, in our bank account. We can look to the, to the government to be our, our biggest form of security. But the reality is all those things pale in comparison to the one true God. Again, creation was never meant to be the end, but rather it is the creator who our affections are supposed to be geared towards. It is the presence of God that we really need because ultimately the things of this earth, we might think they have, again, the people of, the Israel, of Israel thought Baal had power. They thought he had all this glory, all this majesty, all this influence. But what the psalm clearly communicates, I don't know how it can be any clearer that he had nothing. And so for us, in the same way, we do, what is it that we want to ascribe worth and glory and value to that at the end of the day can't hold a candle to what God can do for us? So we, I wanted to take time to, to work through these things because one, I, I want us to see just how beautiful the scriptures are. Like the author of Psalm 29 knew his context and, 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 and through the Holy Spirit wrote this. That's beautiful. But, but I also want us to see, because I think it should give us, should cause us to ask the questions, is there something that I see also as greater than God? Is there something I want to ascribe worth to that really the Lord can just crush like that? Creation was always meant to point to our creator. It was never meant to be the end of itself. And, and, and what verses three through nine help, should help us see is that there is nothing greater than God. There is nothing greater than our God. And so where are we tempted to shift our eyes to? Where are we tempted to, to give false glory to? Where are we tempted to, to, to hold on to something a little bit too closely that maybe uh, we shouldn't? This Psalm 29 is challenging us to think like this challenging us to think about where do we ascribe the most glory to? But it shows us that there is nothing better than him. And because there's nothing better than God, we can trust him. Let's look at verses 10 through 11. It says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The psalm ends with this commanding statement of the one who's in charge. It is the Lord who sits enthroned over the flood. It is the Lord who is king forever. And you think about the word sit. When, when someone is sitting on their throne, they're not worried about outside threats. They're pretty stable. The picture of the Lord sitting on his throne is that he's not worried about somebody else trying to dethrone him because no one can. And because no one is able to dethrone the Lord, he is the one that we can trust. 
Our greatest trust can be in the one who will never be dethroned. And that comes out in verse 11. And really, as this, it, it's, 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 a, it's a prayer, but really it's also a declaration. May the Lord give strength to his people. Guess what? God gives strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Guess what? God gives peace to his people. Peace means completeness. It means wholeness. The God who roars over the mountains, the God who is glorious, who is, who is worthy of supreme honor, who made everything, the, the God of glory showed his glory by humbling himself. He showed his glory by humbling himself, by becoming a man, by becoming, um, uh, by becoming not even just becoming a man, but rather he went to uh, the cross. The cross, which in Deuteronomy was believed to be a curse. He went to the cross. He died a death that we deserved. He paid the penalty for our sin, which is actually our greatest enemy. Sin, death, and Satan. The things that we have no power over, but he has all power over. He came as a man. Then he died a death that we deserved. And then he rose again, showing that he defeated the things that are our biggest threats. And when we look to Jesus, when we see Jesus as the one we need, as we see Jesus as the only one who could have bring us, reconcile, reconcile us back to God, then we will understand who true peace is. Because he's saying, whenever we think about peace, peace is this, where peace is ultimately found is in this perfect union with the one who created us. And the only way we're able to have a perfect union with God is through his son, Jesus. We cannot do anything to earn our spot in God's presence, but Jesus did everything we needed for that to happen. And when we rely on him, you know what we receive in return? Peace, strength. See, Psalm 29, when we're talking about the ascribing the glory and worth um, to the Lord, we see the culmination in the person of Jesus. We see the culmination of, of, of Psalm 29 in uh, what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I want to, uh, Caleb, you can, uh, Band, you can go ahead and come back up. Paul speaks to this much more clearly than I ever could, but we see the glory of, of God reflected uh, in the gospel. We see in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. That's not it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow. Baal will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What Psalm 29 would have us do 
is to get our eyes off of the lesser things. Get our eyes off of the the false idols, the false gods that we think are going to help us, that we think are going to give us life. And what Psalm 29 would have us do is is ascribe ultimate glory and worth to God. And in return, when we do that, when God is the greatest measure of our affections, when he is the in our eyes, the one who's most worthy of glory and praise, we will see with greater light why we can trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we'll go to him. And the more we go to him, our affections will see the more we need him. And the more we need him, the more we'll actually glorify him. John Piper, is a, he says a quote that, he's, that you've probably heard before. He says like this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And the way that we receive the satisfaction in Jesus, this, this, this peace with God that can ultimately lead to this glory, it's not by our works, it's not by what we can do, it's not by trying harder, but rather it's simply resting in the finished work of Christ, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's where our hope lies, and that's where we will see the, God, the glory of God the greatest. And when we take communion this morning, we are reminding ourselves of just that. We are reminding ourselves that the glory of God was displayed through Jesus, through his dying on the cross, through his breaking his body, which we, when we take the bread, that's what that represents. And then when we drink the juice, we're, we're reminded of the, the blood that he shed and spilled for us, for the omission of our sins, for the cleansingness of our sins. And so we take communion to be reminded of where really our glory comes from, of where our worship needs to be pointed at. If, if you're not a believer in, in here this morning, I would ask that you, we ask that you would refrain um, simply because this is not something you've confessed yet. But we would ask that you would consider Jesus. And if you have any questions, we'd love to talk to you. This is a place to ask questions. This is a safe place to try to figure it out. But for those who are us in Christ, when we take communion this morning, would you be reminded of the hope that you have? And would you be reminded that there is nothing in this world that is worthy of more glory and honor and reverence in our lives and trust than the one who died for us? Would you join me at the table?